Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 hi friends this is wendy scott i want you to know about my personal friend mark romanowski and his locksmith and fire door inspection business mark decided to sponsor season watch to share the great joy he's experienced since he gave his life to jesus he accepted the lord later in life and hopes that you won't wait to have the same peace too mark's always saying hey man you just need jesus and that's true so if your commercial building has fire doors contact mark's fire door inspection services he can inspect and certify all your fire doors and help fix the most common problems with fire marshal inspections like jesus helps us pass god's inspection for heaven you can find mark services and contact info at san diego fire door inspection.com that's san diego fire door inspection.com thank you and god bless welcome to season watch with wendy scott where we observe the things coming on the earth through biblical binoculars because the bible is both timely and timeless with her master's degree in rhetoric and writing skills wendy is a part-time college professor but a full-time truth professor. She believes the Word of God is His perfect revelation, including a young earth six-day creation, as well as the global flood inundation, and that Israel is God's chosen nation. Faith alone in Jesus is salvation. The true church rapture comes pre-tribulation, followed by Christ's millennial domination and His eternal kingdom with earth's regeneration. Jesus is coming without hesitation. And now, here's Wendy with today's topic. Hello, friends. Thank you for joining me again with Season Watch. And of course, we're going to start with prayer. We sure need it today. And so, Jesus, we just thank you that you're always with us. Uh, Help us, Lord, to keep our eyes on the things above as we walk through this land of trouble, troublesome land, and help us to notice the things that are going on around us, not to be just earthly-minded, Lord, but to be aware of the spiritual things. Use us, God, with other people. Uh, people's hearts are hurting, and they, they tend to hide it, Lord. Help us to be available for them. Help us to pray on the spot for people when they're challenged with the things of life. Help us to share your love, and help us, Lord, to encourage one another. We sure need it, God. Just help us to just stay in prayer, and we just give all these things, our hope, our dreams, and our our faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, friends, uh, it's time to pick a side. If you haven't picked a side yet uh, concerning Israel, let me remind you that God is on the side of Israel. And we look at Genesis 12, 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, right? And not only do we get the oracles of God, the law, the understanding, and the revelation of who he is exactly, a specific revelation of the nature and character and the love of God, but they also gave us the Messiah. They were faithful. Uh, yeah, we can we could say they, they killed Jesus. Uh, hello, I killed Jesus. Um, he needed to die for my sins, and uh, we're all complicit And so we want to pray for Israel, pray for them that God blesses them. And remember that these are just like the days of Zechariah. Zechariah 12, 3 talks about Jerusalem being a burdensome stone that all that gather themselves against it will be cut to pieces. 
And then uh, in the latter days, it says in Ezekiel 38, that in the latter days that he's going to bring a great people against the land and that he will allow it so that the nations will know him, that they will see him hallowed in the sight of God. Um, And so we're praying, we're noticing these days as time gets short and we want to pray for Israel and we must stand with Israel and pray for them and stand with God, stand with the truth and stand for uh, stand against all these evil things that are happening before our eyes. Thank God they've been revealed because apparently they were there all along. And so we want to pray for Israel that they seek God. That's the best thing we can do. We don't have to agree with everything, but he said he that they would be a nation before him as long as the stars and the moon and the sun. And that's why we must agree. And so we pray for Israel. We pray that they seek God, that they find him, um, that he does miracles on their behalf, which he's done for every war, and that they see his hand, Lord, that they glorify him and draw to him. We know that many will come to faith before the rapture and that seeds will also be planted for those who haven't decided before that time. And the time is near. And so we want to pray that God will show himself strong for them because America certainly will not. And we know that that time is coming. And the whole world is full of lies. And the days of deception are upon us. Barbarism, treason, hate, virulent hypocrisy are flooding the surface of the planet, covering all of our um, culture. Like the gates of hell have unleashed the spirit of the Antichrist, of demonic spirits into a world void of conscience and reasoning. Violence and rage have transformed a great portion of humanity into mindless, conscienceless, vile, spewing zombie mobs, mobs, and it's growing, and no one's standing against it, and we must not fear. We must stand strong for the truth in love, but without wavering. And so we're at the very doors of Jesus' return. He said, when you see these things, look up. Your redemption is near. Pray you're worthy to escape all these things and to stand before the Son of Man. And so, friends, fasten your truth belts as today we continue our series, The Bible Defends Itself, The Genesis Flood, as in the days of Noah. This is part two. And so last week we read the flood account in Genesis 6 and 7, and from it we derived details of God's clear instructions concerning the ark's construction and what animals to bring on. It was very specific. And we noted that the ark was large enough to hold two of every kind, as God said, uh, two of every land-dwelling animal and whose is the breath of life, and even room to spare for any humans that uh, Noah managed to convert, which apparently they did not. And so it would not be necessary to load every last species, right? We talked about how the kinds, one, one pair can hold all the genetic information to diversify in the different kinds, just like there are uh, lots of diversity among the mice, the cats, the dogs, horses, bears. They all can inter, uh, intermate. They're interfertile. And so we just need one set of each And then God would take it from there after uh, Noah's Ark landed. And then we noted that dinosaurs were land animals created on the sixth day. So, of course, creationists do not believe that there were no dinosaurs. We just understand that they were created on the sixth day with the other land animals. And even Job describes two creatures in uh, chapters 40 and 41 of Job. 
and God's, it's God's description of two creatures that could be nothing else but dinosaurs that we've actually known about, that we actually have seen in our fossils. And so this suggests that they survived after the flood, right, because uh, Job was written after the flood. And so there's a great deal of eyewitness testimony for dinosaurs existing after the flood, as we discussed in the past. And I recommend a great book on this subject about dinosaurs specifically, and it's called Untold Secrets of Planet Earth, Dire Dragons. Dire Dragons, Untold Secrets of Planet Earth, Dire Dragons. It's a completely compelling book with lots of evidence about dinosaurs being uh, uh, just encountered uh, after after the flood in the throughout humanity, and so we also looked at the Genesis seven account, which described when it was time to enter the flood, and it describes in Genesis seven one that God told Noah to come into the ark, and that um, Noah was righteous, and that. Um, in seven days, he would cause rain to come on the earth, and Noah did according to what God said. And when he was 600 years old, the floodwaters came, and Noah and two of all flesh and his whole family, and of course, there were seven clean animals, uh, depending on what God directed, all on the ark. And that we see that only the animals that had the breath of life, land animals, were put on the ark. They didn't even mention bugs. I think bugs just jumped on as soon as the rain started. And so uh, then we looked at the description of the mechanism and stages of the flood, which is actually very telling, uh, especially geographically or geologically. So we see Genesis seven eleven in the 600th year of Noah's life. In the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up. This is a upheaval, a geological upheaval. And the windows of heaven were opened. That's a lot. That's not a cloud. That's the windows of heaven. And, of course, it hadn't even rained before that, the Bible indicates. So this was um, huge. And the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and now the flood was on the earth 40 days, and the waters increased and lifted up the ark as it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the earth moved about on the surface of the waters. You can see that. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. And remember, they're in a ark, which is a box, as we discussed last time. It's not a boat. And so it just lifted it up. And the waters, verse 20, and the waters prevailed 15 cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts and creeping things, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, all that was on dry land, died, and only Noah and those that were in the ark with him remained alive. And so based on this description, it's clear that the global flood is literal, and it covered the entire earth. It can't be local based on this description. And the mechanism for the flood here is described that the fountains of the great deep were broken up. We're going to talk about that and what that means geologically. Um, And of course, we know there's underground springs and water and things like that just go to, you know, Yellowstone National Monument, there's lots of water under there, and it springs out. And so there, the fountains of the great deep, and it was a geological upheaval. And then it rained for 40 days and nights, and then it outlines the, the stages of the flood. And then it describes a mechanism for receding the flood. As we look at in Genesis 8, God uh, brought the flood to an end and caused the waters to recede. In chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him and they were in the ark, and God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. 
the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained and the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of 150 days, the waters decreased. Then the ark rested on the se- in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, on, mountain, on the mountains of Ararat. And so it's another great book, uh, as I mentioned last time, by the same people on this topic of the flood. And it's called Untold Secrets of Planet Earth Flood Fossils. And it looks uh, at the great fossil and geological evidence that proves there was a catastrophic global flood. And it also gives eyewitness testimony, which is very interesting, from several sources about seeing the ark and the descriptions of it on Mount Ararat or in the mountains of Ararat. And it's very compelling. And so we don't need an ark to believe it's true. We can see all the evidence for it, but it's a cool idea. So I recommend Untold Secrets of Planet Earth Flood Fossils. Go get that. It's great. It's a great witnessing tool for skeptics, too, because once you look at it, you're like, uh, okay, I guess you're right. So I recommend that. Um, But then uh, if we note in verse 1, verse 1 describes that God made a wind to pass over the earth. So it's a mechanism God used to help the waters subside. And so we can see that once, once before the flood, there had been a temperate atmosphere and likely held up, restrained in the atmosphere was uh, most of the water. Um, and no, there was no rain and no storms at that time. But at the end of the flood, God would activate the global jet stream, that's the wind, and set weather patterns into motion and create the hydraulic cycle. So you see how wise this is, the wind passing over, that was necessary to create the weather patterns, hydraulic cycle, and the process of evaporation and precipitation was set in motion, right, after the great upheaval. And so we looked at Psalm 104 also for the specific geological mechanism that God used to remove the waters from the earth. And we see in Psalm 104, beginning in verse 5, it says, You who laid the foundations of the earth so that it could not be moved forever, you covered it with the deep. It means deep water as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. So this is a, um, a recounting of the flood. And then at verse 7, it says, At your rebuke, they fled away. At the voice of your thunder, at your thunder, they hastened away. They they went up the waters. Um, as the mountains arose, the waters went down into the valleys to the place for which you founded them, right? So God created mountains, caused mountains to suddenly rise in the geological upheaval at the end of the flood, caused mountains to suddenly rise. And that in doing so, the waters um, drained off of the land into the sea, into the ocean basins. And it says that you have set a boundary there that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. And that's what we see. It's very clear that the land stands outside of the water and the mountains cause all of the water to go into the the ocean basins. So we see that not only does the Bible meaningfully describe all these details, but that all our observations reveal overwhelming geological evidence for the flood. It matches all of our observations. And we see that the evidence verifies this account. So first of all, we know that it is possible, right? Right now, 71% of the earth's surface is covered with water. That's a lot. And that actually 96% of the Earth's water is found in the oceans. And so, in case you didn't know, if the world had no mountains and no valleys, there's enough water that it would be covered with 1.7 
miles of water. So you see, there's plenty there. It's quite possible. And then the second geological evidence, uh, second, the geological evidence testifies to a catastrophic worldwide flood. And we see that Answers in Genesis puts this in, um, uh, puts this overwhelming evidence in a very clever and memorable way. They say, millions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the world, right? That's their little chant that they use to remind people of all the overwhelming evidence. And so if we take a look at what it takes to create a fossil is that it has to be rapidly buried as a specimen in waterborne sediments before it can decay. So it has to be a rapid process. And we see tons of evidence that all of these fossils that are encased in in these waterborne sediments all over the world, that they're frozen in time, that they haven't even decayed yet. Um, depends on the stage of the flood. Some of them are being drained, and so they're tumbled around and maybe dis- disarticulated a little bit. But the ones that are just laid down in in sediments initially, we've got uh, amazing um, detailed finds. I mean, they're they're they've got impressions of of not just fish and the things that they're doing, but lots of um, soft-bellied, soft-bodied uh, things like jellyfish, and we've got lots of delicate things like flowers and every kind of thing you can imagine. That's because it was suddenly covered in waterborne. So they've they've got dinosaur tracks. They've got tracks of all kinds because it was um, cemented in the high mineral water, and it was suddenly covered by another layer. And so it's so easy to see and detect this evidence, and the fossils tell the story of sudden rapid burial before, you know, fossils aren't really formed very much today because it has to have the right conditions of suddenly being buried by these waterborne sediments. There's other types of fossils that are that we could talk about, but the kind that we're talking about um, is, is, is clear evidence for rapid burial. And so, um, the millions of fossils and miles of sedimentary layers all over the planet reveal that this is a rapid catastrophic event. And hundreds of mass fossil graveyards exist. They're found all over the world. They collect and entomb dozens of specimens in one place. Fish, giant dinosaurs, like not Dinosaur National Monument. They've just got so many examples. of. And one place, there's like 300 mesosaurs, which are like... Um, you know, like a cow size, 300 mesosaurs buried at once in one time. And they're trying to explain this, that, you know, oh, a creek overflowed its bed. No, this is catastrophic. Giant dinosaurs articulated at times, giant, you know, specimens buried in heavy, large loads of sediments. This is a catastrophe. You can't look at it any other way. And so we've got often have shellfish and other marine ant life buried with dinosaurs and terrestrial life. So obviously they intermix and we see that we know that there were probably these giant tsunamis that came onto land and washed uh, shoreline um, uh, marine life onto land and buried it with the terrestrial life, just like a, a tsunami would. We also find interesting evidence like polystrat fossils, which are common, and that's a, like a longer fossil specimen, like a tree or a whale, buried upright through the ge- geologic layers, layers that have been identified by evolutionists as representing different geological eras, and it's buried upright in there, like it could wait around for 100 million years to get buried. Do uh, you think a, a tree can just sit there? No, it was upright because it was buried in an ongoing processes 
of the flood. There's no other way to explain it. And there's like thousands and thousands of examples of polystrat fossils that straddle two geologic eras separated by millions of years. That's impossible. A tree just can't sit there like that, and we know it. It just defies logic, what they're trying to tell us. All we have to do is investigate. And so the whole earth uh, is covered with thick layers of fossil-bearing waterborne sediments, and most of the layers are in these great formations that cover more or one continent at a time. And so several sedimentary formations were apparently laid while the continents were still connected. So that also testifies to a a rapid uh, geological process. And the Grand Canyon is a great example of this. By the way, those sediments stretch all over the United States. And it's um, in the Grand Canyon, it's exposed because of the great erosion. By the way, if you just look around San Diego, everywhere you go, what do you think these canyons are? It's where the ocean, uh, where the floodwaters drain from the local mountains, drain towards the ocean, and it piled up all these sedimentary layers. And as the water continued to drain, it it carved gullies and valleys and stuff. And uh, it's not that you look at Mission Valley, it's not that tiny little river that carved that out. That was a huge flood draining off. And then you go to Sunset Cliffs or all the cliffs around San Diego, anywhere you see cliffs, that's just waterborne sediments laid down higher than the, than the water is today. How to get that high? Uh, you know, you can't pile up water in one spot. And all over the world, you've got um, all these examples of very high seashore cliffs what's happening there they the it was the water was once that high laid that sediment and then as the water receded just the shoreline erodes it that's why you see the the cliffs backing up little by little as the shoreline licks at the base and breaks it off right so that it's obvious it's more evidence for um, for the flood. And so just like in the Grand Canyon, it's a mile deep of layered fossil-bearing sediments. A mile deep. It's carved a mile deep with a canyon that has been cut through the layers. The layers are on top of each other like a pancake. And these layers supposedly represent millions of years in between each, each layer, but there's no evidence of erosion between the layers. And I just want you to picture the Grand Canyon in your mind or look at, a, look at a picture of it and look at it. They're flat, contact surfaces. They go straight across. And in between all these supposed geologic errors, there is no, um, there's no soil formation. There's no canyons. There's no erosion. There's no gullies. There's no sign of plant life. There's not even roots in between except for something that was fossilized. But you don't see any evidence that in between these layers, any of them for that whole mile, that there was ever any exposure to weather for any in, in any space of time. It's flat contact layers. Take a look for yourself. This is impossible. It's not even possible. These were all waterborne layers laid down at one time, successive um, stages of the flood. And, and then at the end of the flood, and there's some theories about what opened the Grand Canyon up, but that they were all laid at once. And that's evidence for catastrophic. And so this is the same phenomenon throughout the world where these contact, these flat contact layers, and there's no evidence of erosion between them that represent millions of years. And so, friends, there is no evidence that the evolutionary interpretation of geological features or the fossils that they contain are anything different than the exact type of evidence we would look for if there had been a worldwide flood. It proves it. What would you look for? Oh, I'd expect a bunch of dead things covered. And guess what? That's what we got. Whole entire world, even on the tops of mountains, Mount Everest, even has marine fossils in it. 
And so um, if we just look at that, the description, how the mountains arose and the valleys dropped down so the water would flow in the sea basins, that's exactly what the evidence suggests. And it's clear that through the rapid plate tectonics, the once single continent was divided and driven apart. And as the plates separated, the spreading zone was filled with magma and created a new seafloor, which is actually what we see. And uh, we see that this new seafloor, interestingly enough, is younger than the, um, than the sediments, based on all criteria, even evolutionists agree, that the seafloor is younger than the sediments and the fossil-bearing layers on the continents, which reveals that they were primarily laid during the flood and then the, uh, through the geological upheaval of the, um, the mountains, the mountains were created, right? And they just jutted the mountains up by causing plate tectonics to drive in different directions. And so, friends, we just have so much evidence of catastrophe. There's no other way to look at it. And more importantly, not just all this flood and geological evidence that match the description in the Genesis account, but we also see there's evidence of an ice age, which is best explained by the superheated waters at the end of the, at the end of the, um, when all of the fountains of the great deep stirred up all the magma and heated up the oceans. It caused rapid evaporation at the end of the flood and accumulated on land, which was much cooler. So actually, it's the best mechanism for the ice age. And friend, when we look at all the evidence, we can see very clearly that the Bible conforms to and and adhere and reveals how we can interpret and understand the geological evidence. And so we know that Jesus confirmed the the flood when he said in the last days it would be like the days of Noah. And in the days of Noah, uh, we are. <laughs> and so if you look around, friends, uh, this is a warning to us. The judgment that came because of our sin looks a lot like right now. And so please just turn your hearts to Jesus. This is evidence that he will keep his promise. The prophecies are true, and he wants you to be safe in his care. Until next time, God bless you all. Join Wendy Scott every Saturday at 3 p.m. on K-Praise for another episode of Season Watch. Previous episodes can be found through the K-Praise podcast platform, where you can also access Wendy's other platforms and contact links. Please email Wendy with show comments, questions, or suggestions at wscott at mywordsforhim.com or visit her website at mywordsforhim.com for additional resources. Watch other teachings on her Rumble channel. Wendy's Words for Him, her fiction novel, The Lost, A Story of Christmas, can be found on Amazon. Until next week, watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man.